0: good morning good afternoon and good evening welcome to rethink culture the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace cloud culture my name is andreas constantinu and i'm your host and i'm also chairman and founder at slash data and i have a personal passion for rethinking culture today i have the pleasure of having with me alexis Pandazis, who's executive director and co-founder at helas direct which is a next generation insurance company and he's also an active angel investor and a dad. Welcome Alex. Hi Andrea, hi everyone. Thank you very much for hosting me and it's uh, delightful to be here. So we've known each other for quite a while and uh, I've admired your stories that you've shared of how you've built a very strong culture at your company and you have, the company has been running for how long? Uh,
1: We've been up and running for close to 10 years now. We set up Direct with Emilio my co-founder back in 2011 we were incorporated, 2012-13 we went live.
0: Super. Before we go into and hear more about the culture at Direct, I'd like to hear a bit about you and like where you were born, how you spent your childhood years and how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. So I was born in London, but my parents are both from Cyprus, so I grew up in Cyprus. I've
1: got one younger sister, Elena, who is six years younger. She is now working in venture capital in London. And I left Cyprus straight after my army service. I spent two and a half years in the army and then went to study abroad. So I started in England, started working there, eventually went to the US and then came back to London, worked mostly in finance, the bigger chunk of my, of my career. A couple of attempts to escape. I worked for Miramax in film production for a bit and in Brussels in the European Commission. But I always ended up in finance for some reasons. And at some point in time, with Emilio as my co-founder, we decided to come to Greece. It was a new country for us. We're both from Cyprus and set up Elastarek. It was a bit of a macro view, as in Greece was about to blow up. And I think for us, we wanted to set up a disruptive insurance company. It made sense to be based out of here. We can talk about it uh, later in the podcast if you want.
0: And did you have someone who really shaped or influenced who you are today, especially how you think and work as a leader? I mean, I
1: will obviously won't say, you know, family and friends and my wife and kids uh, on this one. I think on a professional basis, obviously, I learn daily. And I think we both learn from each other with Emilio's as my co-founder. But we both had a mentor who unfortunately passed away now, Mark Seppa is one of our investors or was one of our investors. Mark Sepa was a lovely gentleman who was the CEO of NetAporté Nedal Porte, you probably know, is one of the biggest uh, luxury marketplaces in, in the UK. And if you Google him or if you look him up on YouTube, there is um, there's a fantastic video where it's called the most loved CEO of the world. And it's upon his retirement where the whole organization did a, a, a goodbye party for him, a surprise party for him. Mark was fantastically inspirational, very down to earth, a very a brilliant human being. And I think both for me and Emilio, especially when we were setting up the company and especially when Greece was going through its ups and downs. Are we going to stay in the Euro? Are we not going to stay in the Euro? All these things. Mark was very much a beacon of wisdom and somebody who was very inspirational and somebody we looked up to. But at the same time, very humble and very human. So I think it it, it kind of broke the stereotype of the hard leader who is always dogmatic and have a view. And it was always more in active listening mode. And I think we learned a lot from that uh, by interacting with Mark. So
0: when you decided to start an insurance company how much how did the the aspirations for for a business for a thriving high performance business relate with the aspects of culture
1: I think for us with Emilio is when when you look back at that, I mean, obviously, when you start putting your business plan together, you never really think about culture. I think you just do what comes natural to you. We were both blessed to work in organizations that we admire and we had a great experience or training ground in. I mean, both of us worked at Goldman Sachs. Emilio's also worked at McKinsey. I worked for a little stint in BCG. I, I think both of us, you know, got little bits and pieces that we liked from the cultures that we were in before. And also we identified strongly what are the things that we didn't like about these cultures. And it was actually quite funny when we moved to Greece to set up Elas Direct. the feedback we were getting from the ground up was very much a hierarchical structure of a culture where we needed to have an office. We both needed to have a secretary each, which we don't have. We both needed to be very distant to our employees. And we came with a very different mindset. We said, you know, what you do at work Obviously, you need to be high performance. Obviously, you need to have the right ethics, all these things which we're we're considering as given. But the way you interacted with other colleagues and your employees should not be the distant, classic, hierarchical, alpha male type way of running the business. So back to your question, I think in the early days, we never really formulated, we never sat down and said, this is how the culture should be. But through the years, we can definitely identify certain things that we went through that are now part of our DNA. So, and and when you actually look at them, you can actually say, "Oh, this one we stole from Goldman. This one we stole from McKinsey. This is from the special forces in the army. This is." So you can
0: find the connection and the connecting lights. So, what did you actually steal from these companies? What what ideas did you get inspired by? I I I mean, what we both admired
1: Goldman. Goldman is one of those cultures where you either love it or hate it. I think it's a little bit of a marmite effect. And both Emilio's and I. Our big believers that what the company does, it does it very, very well. There's a book that we were more or less forced to read when we came on, which was called Cultural Success. And I remember I was just fascinated with the history and the the people that were leading the company at different points in time, how they made their mark. So back to what is it that we got from Goldman? Goldman has a very strong collegiality. There is healthy competition, but there's a very strong sense of collegiality. It's us versus the world. And I think that is something that we definitely copied and it's part of what we do. The interview process was definitely something that we copied from both Goldman and McKinsey. We always have three rounds of interviews, two people per round, and it's people from different parts of the organization that would typically explore fit because at the end of the day, skills in most circumstances you can pick up, but the culture fit is something that either works or it doesn't work. And I think for us, It's very easy to be fooled in an interview if you just go in once and you just happen to gel with somebody. So in an effort to be a little bit more open-minded about the people we hired, we decided to copy what Goldman and McKinsey does, which is many, many different rounds of interviews, different settings. You get to see a person from different perspectives and at the end of it is a dating game so the new recruit also needs to feel that this is the right place for me. So investing upfront in these relationships rather than later on was something that we definitely copied from from these guys. And I think the other thing that we more or less copied from my experience in in the Special Forces was that in Special Forces you have small autonomous teams that if somebody dies during an attack, you have to have others that will step up and take that responsibility. What does that mean is that everybody needs to have a broad enough understanding and a good enough understanding of what everybody else does so that if the case comes, you will be able to step up. So that led to two things for us. One, the co-management that we have with Emilio's, which is not that common. I mean, people do it these days, where there's Netflix and other organizations, but at the time it was very, very strange to have a co-CEO structure. But also we rotate our people quite a lot. So you have people that started in answering phones on the call center that ended up heading claims and eventually went into a strategic intelligence unit. So you have people that have rotated quite a bit in the organization. In the early days, there was a lot of investment that needed to go into that, in terms of time, ramping up, even money. But in hindsight, 10 years down the line, I think we have a very strong group of all-rounders that can work in small teams, very much similar to a special forces team. So I want to
0: deep dive into both. Starting with your culture fit interviews, do you do it? Do you, do you do run these interviews in a qualitative fashion or a quantitative fashion? So do you like Amazon, like ask for specific examples of like how do you represent that value in your life? Or do you observe and test the candidate more qualitatively? I think it really depends on the role.
1: There's a general fit, I would say, that is, is difficult to put in quantifiable ways. So that's more of a, can you ask the right questions to understand if somebody is overly arrogant? Can you ask the right questions to understand if this person would be willing to learn and explore their intellectual curiosity? We're looking for three things in people, typically. We're looking for smart people. Uh, and smart doesn't mean academically smart. We have the whole range from PhD in data science all the way down to somebody who hasn't gone to university but is brilliant at fixing a car and understanding you know, how you decompose the different parts of the, of the, of the car to fix it, right? So it's, it's a smartness which is not well-defined because it could be street smartness or academic smartness. But being smart, I think, is something which is important to us. The second one is being passionate And not passionate about insurance. Not many people are. I think it's being passionate about something. And most of the people in Elas Direct have a different hobby that they're passionate about, ranging from playing music to being a stand-up comedian to be a beekeeper. And you have the whole range. And again, just you see the type of personality you attract as an organization. Most people have something they're passionate about the third one is to have, a, I would say, the drive to change the world. I know it sounds very presumptions, but ultimately, is, especially in Greece during the crisis, it was important to get optimistic people on board that they really believe that, hey, if I put the work in and I'm a little bit lucky, maybe we can change the world. Maybe not the world, but the insurance sector. Maybe not the insurance sector, but the life of this consumer that just called me and is pissed off because they crashed. So we needed that positivity. So back to your question You can't really structure an interview around these three things. Obviously, we have case studies for more deep experts or more senior people that come through the team. But in all the interviews, definitely up to the point that we were 100 people, maybe even more, the final round was always with Emilio and myself or with one of us. So I would say we, out, we had the ultimate yay or nay on culture fit, and that's what we really focus on.
0: Can you still do that with 200 people in your organization?
1: We went through a phase where we stopped doing that just because it was just not possible, given workload and stuff. And then we decided that this was so important that we need to do that. So Emilio or myself or both of us, are now doing, again, the the final round. So I think probably up to employee 110, 120, we probably saw every single one of them. Then we went through a phase where we probably hired 20, 30 people, especially during COVID. I think we skipped that during that phase. And since coming back to the office or since we we, we started having hybrid work, I think we, we started doing that. So,
0: yeah. And then you mentioned you rotate people in different departments or... Job descriptions. How does that work? Is it an elective? Is it something you encourage them? Is it something yep. that's part of their job? I mean, in the beginning, in the beginning, we had to, <laughs> just because we didn't have enough people. <laughs> so it's like,
1: oh shit, we need to do this. Let's put this person there. I think in time, a lot of people express a preference coming in. So somebody who would come and join us on the customer service team, which is very much focused on servicing a client at a time of need. We always erred on the side of getting smart people that could, who had good judgment, I would say. Uh, so they would never had a script. They never had something specific. We did intense training for three, four weeks. And then once you do that, we never timed them. Is it a 10-second call or is it five-minute call? whatever it is, as long as the client is more happy when you put the phone down. So these kind of training sessions allowed us to get smart people. And the smart people we got obviously had more ambition. So they would say, I'm happy picking up the phone now for a couple of years, but you know what? I really like marketing. That's what I studied. I just graduated from my degree. Can I go there? And I think in the beginning, it was very easy for us to accommodate this. As you scale up as a company, you recognize the need to hire deep experts in certain fields. And I think there it becomes... Less and less likely that you will just rotate somebody without having their necessary mentorship or guidance from the top. So I think on that one, back to your point, it is an elective, but I think it's partly a combination of the two. So we as an organization will see we have a a need. We will open up all roles internally, not just externally. People can put their hand up. There's no criticism about that, saying, hey, I got this role three months ago, but I would love to go for this. But it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get it. I think in the past, you had a much higher hit rate than we do now.
0: And how do you work with the individual, the staff members, to design their career path in the organization?
1: I think this is something that we're getting better and better at now. Two years ago, we didn't even have a people and culture function. And I think we reached a point where we had... You know, up to a certain point, as a founder, you remember everybody's names, you know their family history, the family background, the team they like and whatever. And at some point in time, it just gets unmanageable, right? When you cross usually the 100, 100 person level, it starts getting more and more difficult. So I think that's when you need to start introducing more structure, for the lack of a better word, or at least to have more rigid way of looking at somebody's career path. And there you, you, you tend to see two things. You tend to see some of your early employees that say, wait, wait a second, I object to that. I react to that. Um, I came here because it was much more of a, of a you know, startupy feeling, 10 people eating pizzas together, going to the bar together. And now you're telling me I need to have some sort of structure. And some people are like, I needed that or I need that in order to be more productive and, and be able to give back more and, and all that. How do we sit down and figure out career paths? I think we need to understand people's preferences and we need to be very honest with each other about what are we good at and what are we not good at. And that's something that we do daily. Even with Millers and myself, we get feedback from our team around us And it is a question of show me my blind spots. The reason why I'm asking you is not because I will feel worse or better about myself, is I want to understand if I have blind spots, what are they and how do I address them? And that's something that we do very openly. We talked about it in the past about radical candor and being very, you know, brutally honest with ourselves. And I think that's something that we do. So when we sit down and talk about somebody's career, it's pointless to be talking about five years from now, where you're going to be within the organization, because the organization is changing so quickly in so many different dimensions that there's roles that will be existing then that you don't even know about now. Small example, we launched in Romania two months ago. There is an opportunity now for somebody to be based in Bucharest, right? Two years ago, we couldn't have said that, oh, in two years' time, there will be a role for you in Bucharest. So back to to your question, I think it is a question of understanding and mapping people's preferences, understanding people's skills, and be honest about feedback points and how to work towards that. And when the time is right, I think you can identify the people that want that extra responsibility. How will you give it to them and how quickly you will give it to them? I think that's always a little bit of a managing
0: exercise. And you mentioned Radical Candor, which I recently read and is one of my favorite books now. How do you encourage people to challenge you and Emilius directly? Have you like in practice been seriously challenged? Do you see this practice happening not just to management, but also among peers or between managers and their reports? Yeah, I I think if there's one thing that I feel very proud of
1: looking at our culture is this, we have achieved the level where we can look at each other in the eye, have a very healthy debate and be very honest about each other without getting into micropolitics and politics. I think that's something that at least most of the people that have been with us for five, six years now, they, they recognize that. Back to have they challenged Melissa myself many times in the way we conduct ourselves at meetings, in the way that we interact with each other, in the way that we say something that may be overly optimistic or overly, there's always a balance between being the momentum driver and vision driving person as a founder and at the same time being the person that diffuses stress and is the, the kind of the, the the filter or the valve that reduces the tension in the organization. And we expect that from our people as well. So we have had many open discussions around the table where it's like, okay, guys, what has worked for us so far is not what is going to take us forward. And how do we make sure that we stay impactful but we don't lose that sharpness of a startup? But we need to start thinking about, well, it's more of us now and it's more of us with different responsibilities and make sure that you're not siloed as an organization. So things like that you need to have constant open discussions, practical things that we've done. We have get-togethers as teams and as organization, as the different parts of the organization on a regular basis. We have smaller groups, whether it's lunches or dinners or breakfasts that we do. We have a training program for our, I would say, next generation leaders, as we call it, that we try to get them into that culture early on so that when they become managers of their own, they already have part of that DNA embedded in them. So, So we do some, you know, Obviously we're learning as we go, but we copy things that we see in other organizations that we like and we try to instill that in our culture as well.
0: You mentioned you have, uh, or you recently added like two years ago, a people and culture department uh, in your organization. Why did it take you that long and how did you think about going about it? So you call it people and culture as opposed to HR?
1: I think starting from starting from the when did we do it and why. I think until that we, we both felt Emilius and I felt the ownership. Uh, same with some of the, the the senior members of our leadership. Team. We always felt that we have the ownership of that. And just to give an idea, most of the recruiting in the organization in the early days was done by me or Emilius on LinkedIn. So it would be us reaching out to people saying, "Hey, we saw your background. We think you're very interesting. This is what we're trying to do." If if you think there's a fit, let's have a conversation. I don't know many organizations where the founders would be the ones reaching out first, as opposed to an HR department or a recruiter. Now, when we brought somebody in, it's typically the hiring manager that hires, as opposed to, I give my request to a department that sources for me. So given that we were doing a lot of that ourselves, we never felt the need at the time to have a dedicated person doing that, and then actually back to your point about radical candor, one of the people in our team, Katerina, came up to us and is like, "Guys, we're 120 people now. Maybe the stuff that we have blind spots on as an organization, maybe people want to open up in a way that they're not comfortable opening up to their direct report or to the to the founders. So we need to have a dedicated person. And then we had to make the decision: Do we hire somebody who's done this before? Or do we bring somebody from within and to the point about retaining people, we have somebody step up for that role? And we thought about both with Emilio's and we did interview a couple of people just to get a sense. And we decided that at the time that it made more sense for us to get one of our earliest employees, Marilora, who started off originally as marketing, eventually went into claims, at some point passed from customer service, and we, we got Marilora and we said, you know the organization inside out, we, you know what we stand for. Obviously, it's a huge learning curve for you, but we're happy to go through this journey together. Why don't we set up a people and culture function from scratch and you lead it? And I think that has worked out for us. So there's obviously, you know, pros and cons of getting somebody who's done it before versus somebody who is doing it and learning as they go. But I think this is something that has worked for us so far. Now, why do we call it people and culture? I think it's a reminder to everybody that this is not a recruiting support function, but this is something that drives the drum beating of the company, the heart of the company. And a big part of our DNA is who we are. That's what differentiates us. And having that in the title of this team, I think is quite important. So it's not just the well-being, upskilling, development, hiring, firing, and all that of our people, but it's also what makes us special and how do we make sure that we, we continue monitoring that. Now, culture changes. We talked about this in the past, the two of us. I think some of the fundamental principles of what you stand for as a company are the same, but culture evolves like anything else in an organization. So. You need to have the main focus of the founders or the management of a company and dedicated people within the HR team focusing on that. I think if you
0: ignore that, you will lose your heart and soul as a company. And what about HR do you think is or should be rethought, let me put it this way, when we talk about people and culture? Like, what old ways do we need to rethink? I think... It's a very good question.
1: There's a lot of things that traditional HR has done, especially on the, and let's break down HR into, into three buckets. One of them is recruiting. The other one is the development of people and, you know, the, the day-to-day, if you like, of HR. And the other one I would also say is also the parting ways part. I think starting with recruiting, when you think about recruiting an HR person, unless they have a deep understanding of your culture and what you're looking to do, will never be close enough to what the business needs from that role to be able to make a judgment call. So I disagree with the way that HR in big organizations is typically somebody fairly junior with no experience, goes through resumes and just trying to figure out who's the right fit and who's the right not. And there's companies out there, whether it's Workable, whether it's Tore, whether it's others that are trying to crack that, whether it's with the AI or helping the recruiting manager with the logistics of it. But I think it's very important to start with what is the organization and what it is that they need rather than just a box ticking exercise that a lot of HR departments do. And I'm not dismissing the whole HR industry by no means, but I'm just saying that that's typically what HR was doing in the old days. The second thing, which is the well-being of employees, and I think we've all seen it during COVID in particular, but definitely in Greece during the crisis. I think that it's an important, if not the most important investment that you make as a company is the people that you hire. So focusing on their well-being and well-being doesn't mean that give them everything they need and it's all about massages and the days off on a Friday and things like that. I think it's more important about the development of people and making sure that... You know, you never get it right and you will learn along the way, but making sure that you have a little bit of tough love and understand, you know, that, look, we're a team here. We're not a family. We're a team here. We're trying to achieve a common goal. And because we're not a family and because we are a team, we need to understand each other's weaknesses for that common goal your mission, vision, whatever you want to call it. So that I think HR departments need to have a much more hands-on role than they used to in the past. And again, it's not a question of people complaining and you giving things. I think it's a symbiotic relationship where we each learn from each other. And sometimes it's good discussions, sometimes it's bad discussions, sometimes it's let's go have a drink, sometimes it's sorry, man, you're screwing this up. Let me give you honest feedback here. Now, the last bit is something that we don't do that well either. And I think that there's a lot that the HR world can do about alumni of organizations. Because at the end of the day, especially in the startup world, somebody who's been with us for four or five years in the early days has added a lot of value to us. And even if our roads parted, either because of their choice or our choice, or in most cases is a mutual kind of decision. It doesn't mean that you can't involve them and engage with them. And they they have been a big part of who you are and you've been a big part of who they were in most cases. So that is something that I don't know how you do it properly. I know that organizations like Goldman, like McKinsey are putting a lot of effort to engage with alumni, but it's something that we're not doing properly and we we need to fix ourselves. But back to your point about the broader HR industry, I think
0: these are the three verticals that I think can be improved and can be the rethought. And talking about well-being. Would you include having a psychologist in the team? So in another podcast, I was speaking with uh, the founder of NetData and they do, there's 70 people or so and they do have a psychologist in their team. In my company, our people and culture person is also the person that a lot of the team go to when they are frustrated or simply they need to vent or just talk to someone yep but do you do you have such a function? Do you think such a function is important? I think it's super
1: important to start with, and part of what Marilora uh, has been doing when she took over the role was exactly that. So she became the inherent psychologist and something that Marilora has, which is a a great skill of hers, is the ability to listen and try to rationalize what's emotion, what's real and how do we address it. But I think having an independent person that is a semi-psychologist for the organization, I think is absolutely necessary. Now, is that an external psychologist? Is it a coach? Is it an internal person as head of people and culture? I think we don't know the right answer yet. We're trying all three, to be honest. So right now we do have a couple of coaching sessions with different people in our team, and we're gonna get the feedback and see if it works. And if it works, we broaden it out to everybody. We started relying a lot more on external parties for team building exercises and people that have done it before because we do believe that there is value in that. Now, will you go all the way to, you know, the Billions uh, TV series where you have a dedicated psychologist in the team? I don't know if you're going to go all the way there. I think whatever works
0: and we'll figure it out along the way. You mentioned earlier about Direct being a hybrid company, as in hybrid between remote and office work. And there is a lot of debate on the topic. One pharmaceutical company I... I was speaking to, they cited culture as a reason for going back to the office, that we need to maintain our culture. Now, I come from the very opposite end, which is we're a fully remote company and we've built the culture such that it it works very well in a fully remote environment. So where do you stand on the impact of hybrid versus remote versus office work to culture?
1: Yep. I think that when you look at our organization, we obviously had a lot of debates when COVID kind of started, you know, becoming less of a thing. We started having the discussion, do we bring everybody back like big organizations have done? Or do we stay remote or something in the middle? And I think what we realized with Emilios and the team was that ultimately, when you look at Elas Direct, it's three different organizations together. One of them is a product team, and that product team is your typical, you know, around 50 developers, DevOps, uh, testers, UX, UI people, product uh, specialists. And these are much more asynchronous work that is typically done from home anyway. And these people, even before COVID, had a much more flexible way of working. And there it's easy to measure the deliverables. And you have to make sure that you don't drop the ball on the soft side of things. Meet every couple of weeks to do a retro at the office, go for beers, go whatever. whatever. And the team has been doing anyway their own hybrid model before COVID hit anyway. The second team is what we call a customer journey team, which is everything from our marketing team, customer acquisition, all the way down to customer servicing, when somebody picks up the phone and calls us, all the way down to you crash, you claim, what happens, court cases, and the whole range on that. That's much more, I would say, interactive with the consumers and also interactive within the teams. I will learn a lot by being next to you when you pick up the phone to speak to somebody at a time of stress. That's a moment of truth for us. So you need to have people learning from each other. It's very There's a lot of osmosis there. So there, we actually went through the debate, do we bring everybody in you know, five days a week? And because we are 24-7, do you actually bring everybody in around the clock 24-7 in these functions with shifts? We decided to be a little bit more structured than the product team. So we actually told people, you need to spend three, four days at the office, but we trust our leaders in every team, in every small team, to decide what works best for them. And, and lastly, we have what we call the federation functions, which is more finance, people and culture, a strategic intelligence unit, OKR uh, kind of framework. So people like that, again, it's important to spend time together, but it's not something that we're dogmatic about. So long-winded answer to your question, I don't think that culture is the reason to come back to the office because I do think that if your culture is strong enough, irrespective of the means, you, you can keep it. I think it's very important, though, to structure moments of interaction with the team because it's very different having a virtual interaction versus a physical one. So whether it's doing closer in the year get-togethers, whether it's spending social events, whether it's getting the whole team together somehow, I think that becomes
0: increasingly important. So how do you do that, like in a hybrid environment? How do you get people together?
1: We put a budget for every team, and we said, guys, you know, this is a budget I expect you to spend, and this is whether it's travel to meet, you know, and don't we have an office in Greece, we have an office in Cyprus, now we have an office in Romania. So getting everybody together or making sure that different functions get together on a regular basis, once every three months, once every six months, months—is it once a year, that's something that we're pushing hard in order to do. And because we are fairly decentralized and, and self-driven teams within the organization, we just gave a budget to everybody and we said, guys, assume that you can do that. The one thing that we haven't done well yet is we want to get the whole company together, and there's a lot of logistics with that because about 200 people from three different locations, it gets increasingly complex and expensive. So that we need to make sure that we do it the right way.
0: And is that budget actually being spent? Are
1: people? Doing we're, we're pushing people to spend, and we formalized it as a budget at the end of last year. So it's too soon to tell. But definitely, you know, the, the product team, for example, they meet physically twice a year and they have random teams going back and forth from Greece to Cyprus. I think that's already working and people see the, the positives of that. And as a result, they ask for more. So I think it's beginning to get into that virtuous cycle there.
0: Is there some other cultural innovation you're proud of?
1: I think a couple of years ago, we we launched what we call the Next Generation Leaders Program, which was, uh, and we're actually running our second cohort as as we speak, where we said, okay, well, we've got our leadership team. We're spending a lot of quality time together. We learn from each other. We're very open with our feedbacks. And, and I think, you know, everybody can learn from somebody else. And that team is about 20, 25 people in total. But there was a next generation of leaders popping up right underneath those guys that we wanted to make sure that we... A, say thank you for your support and loyalty. B, we identify you as future leaders of the organization and C, how can we give value to you whether you stay within Elas Direct or you leave? And we launched a program which, again, we looked at what others do globally and we try to figure out what would work for us. And it's a program that runs for about three months. We select six to eight people and we have basically three themes over there. One of them is a learning theme. So we have skills and it's with people within the organization and outside that will give them the soft and hard skills, whether it's negotiation, writing an email, doing a presentation, how do you deal with difficult situations in the workplace, things like that. And these are very practically minded. The second aspect, we call it inspire, is bringing a guest speaker. And that guest speaker was arranged from people that have set up their own business before, people that all the way down to the agent of Yanis and and how do you deal with with a two-time MVP, and how do you give him feedback? So things like that. And again, very practical fireside chat kind of uh, things and what we call shadow, which is basically a budding system or a mentorship system from within. And I think that's something that we're really proud of. We're doing our second cohort as we speak, and what's really exciting is that the second cohort is being run by the first cohort. So it's not it's not us running it anymore, but it's a self-driven kind of thing. So back to your point, I think we're very, very proud of that just because it was something that started within COVID, and I think we managed to to keep it and and grow it since then.
0: And all of this, like micro and micro level of detail on on your culture which you know forms what culture is is, at Hellas Direct. How do you describe it in just a few words to someone who's applying? I think it's people that
1: have a shared vision and a fairly clear direction of what we're trying to get to. I guess what Simon Sinek would say start with the why so I think that's pretty clear in our head as to what we're trying to do. In terms of the way we run teams is self-managing teams and that's fairly relatively stable teams that work together over time. And I think we, we encourage diversity, and, and we do mean that. When you look at the range of people that we hire, I think you need that creativity. You need that trust between different functions. And so you need to have an emphasis in hiring the right people. So it, it's very difficult to put culture to words, I think, because everybody talks about, oh, it's customer-centric, and is this and is that. But I think you need to live it in order to, to get a sense That's why for us spending so much time up front in hiring and getting people in to come and meet the teams before they actually join, I think that's quite important because there is an element of, do I fit here? Do I not? And should I be here? Should I not?
0: As we move towards the end of the podcast, I wanted to also look at the the other side of Alexis, which is the angel investor side. So is culture important when you do your angel investments? A hundred percent. I think when you meet, and and
1: most of the angel investing that have done both successful and unsuccessful have been very early stage type companies. So I think when I meet somebody, obviously I need to understand what they're doing. If it's a space I don't understand, I I, I can't add any value and I'm not the right investor and they're not the right thing for me. But if it's something that I feel that I've got a strong enough understanding in, what really matters is the vision and the passion of the founder. Can you see it in their eyes that they have a view as to how the world will evolve and what it will get to? I think culture of the person, because that ultimately is the initial DNA for the culture of the organization, I think you can sense certain attributes which are important, whether that person listens to feedback, whether they will be challenging some of the feedback if they feel that that's wrong or right. And, and having that debate with them about where the future of this business is going, I think it's a very healthy thing to have. I, I, don't, I don't do well and I typically don't invest with somebody that doesn't follow up after the meeting. The soft things that signal to you that maybe they're not as engaging as they should be with investors, with stakeholders, and tomorrow it could be employees. Now, at the last question I answer my, myself is that nobody has built a business, at least to my understanding, nobody has built a business on their own. So if that person doesn't have the right focus on culture early on, as to what kind of people do I want to recruit and how am I going to scale this business? And you never have all the right answers, but you can see the the person being troubled by it. It's like, will I find the right people? And should I hire this person or that person? If they ask you these kind of questions, I think that's a very good sign. So back to your point, as an angel investor, something that I've, looking back at investments that I've made, a big chunk of it has been, is this person able to scale an organization around their vision that will deliver on that vision? And if they don't have it, are they open-minded enough to saying, I need somebody as part of my findings team that will bring that. And I don't think I've ever made an investment that didn't tick that box, if you if you get what I mean. Did you reject investments because you thought they would lead to the wrong culture? Yeah. Extreme arrogance. People that will take from you and they will never give back in the sense that, not that you expect something back, but if you make five introductions to somebody and they will never follow up and say, hey, I met that person. That was a very useful meeting or that was a stupid meeting. I should have never had it. But never even let you know that they had the meeting. I think those are little small things that, from experience, I think they they end up in being either a toxic culture down the line or... It's something that people are too focused on themselves and they're in, in a very transactional way as opposed to a, a broader culture that I think can scale an organization. Again, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. A lot of famous assholes have made billion dollar companies. So, so I cannot talk about that. But I think for me as, a, as an angel personally, I think it's important to have people that you enjoy working with together as well and hopefully see them thrive.
0: And uh, finally, what do you think we as leaders or leaders around the world whether entrepreneurs or leaders of teams, leaders of self, what do we need to rethink about culture? What do we need to change about culture in our companies?
1: One of the stereotypes that has broken over the last 10-15 years, definitely in the Western world, less so in markets like Greece, is the whole concept of the um, infallible, strong leader, manager that never makes mistakes, that never, that always knows what's the right thing to do. And I think when both Emilius and I started admitting to our team that, hey guys, sorry, I'm scared shitless about this thing, or there's an acquisition that we're looking to make and we decided to walk away last minute. When you're honest about the blind spots you have or the mistakes that you make, I think that's a sign of strength. That in the old days, people never really appreciate You always think of a strong leader as a general in the army, as opposed to somebody that has emotions and is much more open. And I think when you think about entrepreneurship, having people that are constantly learning, who are willing to admit their mistakes, who listen more. I, I think that's the leaders that I look up to and I aspire to be, And that's something we need to rethink. I think there's a lot of things you can copy from other organizations and entrepreneurs always, you know, the, the famous line about, you know, steal from left center. But I think it's important to steal from organizations that you put in the context of time and in the context of does this organization fit with what I stand for? We look up to Amazon a lot and we try to, we've read every single book about Jeff Bezos and the the principles and a lot of the principles that they follow express what we want to do, right? But at the same time, you can't copy everything they do because it's not who you are. So I think it's understanding when you steal stuff, what it is you steal, and and how do you make sure that it fits your culture. I think that's part of the learning as well.
0: Alexi, thank you for the wonderful insights, sharing the story of your culture and inspiring us. Thank you.